Good morning and welcome to our new adult Bible class series, The Rise and Falls of Joseph. We are going to look at his whole life from Genesis chapter 37 all the way to chapter 50. We're going to talk about how he was a dreamer, a prisoner, and a ruler. Now, in order to understand Joseph's story, you've got to know a little bit of background about Genesis. In the book of Genesis, the God of Israel, who is called Yahweh, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the three famous patriarchs who come before the 12 sons who represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And God makes promises throughout Abraham's life. He repeats them over and over and over again. He says that he will make Abraham a great nation. He will uh, go to the land that God will show him and he will possess that land. His name will be great and he will have multitudes of descendants who are like the sand on the seashore or like the stars in the sky. And he promises Abraham that he will bless nations and peoples through Abraham. And he says, those who bless you, I will bless and I will curse those who curse you. Now, uh, the rest of the story of Genesis um, kind of unfolds through unlikely sons. It begins with Abraham and Sarah having a son in their old age. Despite the fact that they are well beyond childbearing age, uh, Sarah still has her son Isaac. Despite the fact that Rebecca, Isaac's wife, experiences fertility, Isaac prays on her behalf and they have twin boys. Esau and Jacob. Rachel and Leah, the two primary wives of Jacob, experience infertility at different times, and yet they still have children. This fam family of Abraham, despite all issues with childbearing, still becomes a great and great and large family. But you've got to know throughout Genesis that this family is very dysfunctional. It does not work well together. There is tons of sibling rivalry, and you can see this descend through the family, whether that's the rivalry between Isaac and Ishmael as half-brothers. Isaac's mom is Sarah, and Ishmael's mom is Hagar, and they don't get along with each other. Esau and Jacob fight over each other because uh, they both have parents who are uh, their favorites. Um, Jacob tricks Esau to give up his birthright and, and tricks his dad to receive the blessing. There is sibling rivalry between Leah and Rachel who were sisters. It is very dysfunctional. And you can see that the sins of the fathers are actually passed down and repeated by their children. So from Genesis 12, where God originally makes those promises to Abraham and his descendants, all the way to Genesis chapter 37, where we're introduced to the character of Joseph, there are promises, there are lots of children, and there is a lot of dysfunction. Despite the fact that this family doesn't work well together, despite the fact that there is a lot of competition and betrayal and lying and cheating and stealing, despite all that, God continues to be with the family and continues to be faithful to Abraham and his descendants. And that leads us to Jacob, who is later renamed Israel. 
his four wives, if you count his two concubines, and 12 sons. We see a burgeoning family of Israel. And that leads us to Joseph. Joseph's story begins when he is 17 years old, and he brings a bad report about his 10 older brothers. We're told in Genesis chapter 37 that Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, this part of the story uh, is very intuitive to all of us. Even if the report about his brothers is accurate, that will not make his relationship with them very good. It's only going to get worse from here. We find out that Israel, Jacob's, uh, this is Jacob, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made Joseph an ornate robe. When his brothers, that's Joseph's brothers, saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now, at the very beginning of his story, Joseph is uh, depicted as favored. He has the favor of his father. He is at, is at the top of the house, if you want to put it that way. He is the beloved son of the beloved wife, who is Rachel. But even though he is favored, even though he is the favorite, Joseph is presented as foolish. He's not necessarily making sinful decisions or evil decisions or wicked decisions. He is making unwise decisions. He is being naive. And this is why we know he's naive. Because Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Now, it does not take a genius to interpret this dream, and Joseph's brothers don't have to be brilliant to understand the implications of it. They say to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? We're told they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Now, in a, uh, in a culture where the firstborn son is given the most authority and therefore the most responsibility to take care of the family when the father has passed away, this is an insult. This is humiliating and embarrassing. The fact that this younger brother is willing to say this to his uh, older brothers is just naive. It's foolish. Um, imagine uh, telling someone in charge of you that you're one day going to be in charge of them. He is not being smart. He's not playing his cards right. If the 11th born son, Joseph, actually uh, was in charge of his brothers, that would bring ridicule and shame upon them. And not only that, this is just making uh, previous situations worse. He's already brought the bad report on them for their work to his father. He has already, uh, uh, it's already obvious that he's his dad's favorite. And now he has this dream and he has no problem telling it to them. And then he makes his situation worse 
In the next verses, it says Joseph had another dream, two dreams, and he told it to his brothers. He said, listen, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now, this is, again, so easy to interpret. It doesn't take a genius to understand the implications of this. He tells this dream to his father as well as his brothers, and his, fathers rebuked him. his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you've had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So even still, his father rebukes him. Why are you telling me this dream that, that I, which presumably he would be the, the sun or the moon in this situation, that we're going to bow down to you? It's one thing to supplant your older brothers. It's another to supplant your own father and mother. However, something is really important about this final verse in verse 11. We're told that the brothers are jealous. They have envy of Joseph. The fact that he's the favorite. The fact that he is the favored one. The fact that he's receiving these dreams from God. But his father kept the matter in mind. Maybe, perhaps we will see that Jacob is aware that something special is going to happen with Joseph. We're not, we're not sure, but maybe his father keeps this matter in mind. Now, unfortunately, Jacob sets up his son Joseph for failure. He sends Joseph all on his own to check on his brothers again. We're told that Joseph's brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. In other words, go report on them again. Go spy on them again. And Joseph, being an obedient son, says, Very well. So, Joseph said to him, um, Excuse me. Uh, it says, So Israel said to Joseph, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? And he replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me way, where they are? They have moved on from here, the man answered. And I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. Now, if you know Joseph's story uh, that, that follows from here and what his brothers do to him, you know that this is a critical moment. If he had just gone home, if he had given up, if he never encountered this man, he would have been spared a lot of suffering in his life. But he's obedient to his fathers. He goes after his brothers, and the story unfolds for the worse for him. They see Joseph in the distance, and before he reaches them, they plot to kill him. They say, here comes that dreamer. Come, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him, and then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben, this is the firstborn son, hears this, he tries to rescue Joseph from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Just throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Now, Reuben is trying to kind of buy for time. He's trying to make sure that he can protect Joseph in this attempt. And so he kind of scales down their, uh, their tactics. He says, throw him in the cistern, but, but don't kill him. He, he tries to scale them back. 
Reuben said this in order to rescue Joseph from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. They took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty and there was no water in it. Now, I just want to point out that the, the dreaming aspect of Joseph's life is central to his brother's jealousy. The fact that he has these dreams, the fact that he is implying or directly saying that he is going to rule over them someday makes them furious. It makes them livid. They say, here comes the dreamer. Once we kill him, we'll see what comes of his dreams. We're told earlier that he hate, they hated him all the more when he told them his dreams. So these dreams, the fact that he is special, the fact that God is revealing his will to Joseph as such a young kid, as the 11th born son, upsets them. That's what makes them do this. That is the catalyst for their decision. Now, at this moment, the brothers see a caravan off in the distance. They sat down to eat a meal, they look up, and they see a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. These camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Now, a, a few quick things about this. Uh, first of all, you might have noticed that first they see Ishmaelites and then they refer uh, to the Ishmaelites again. And then they talk about the Midianite merchants and then they talk about the Ishmaelites again. These are just synonymous for groups and tribes that uh, kind of lived in the same area. This is not a, a mistake or anything like that. It's a kind of synonym to refer to multiple groups of people. So this, these are the same people that uh, Judah and his brothers are seeing. Another important thing to realize is that at this point, Reuben is not present. Reuben came up with the idea to put Joseph in the cistern so as to protect him. Reuben, as the firstborn son, has a responsibility and the authority to care for and protect his brothers. He doesn't want to be like Cain and uh, the whole Cain and Abel situation where Cain says, Who am I? My brother's keeper? That's exactly who you are. As the firstborn son, you're supposed to... Uh, care and protect for your siblings. Uh, and so Reuben attempts to do that, but while he's gone, Judah has this idea. Let's gain from this. Let's profit from this. Let's sell him into slavery. We can't get anything if we just kill him. Let's get something in the process. The irony is he says um, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. Uh, which is not exactly uh, the conclusion that I would come to when I'm thinking about my own brothers, but this is where Judah is. Judah wants to gain uh, from his brother's demise. Now, we see right here that Reuben was gone. It says, when Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Clearly, I think that Reuben actually went to go find his father, but 
uh, he was coming back with him, and it turned out that Joseph wasn't in the cistern. They had already sold him into slavery. But now they've got to come up with something. They've got to figure out a plan to, uh, a kind of story to tell the dad. So they get Joseph's robe, they slaughter a goat, they dip the rope in the robe in blood. They took the robe back to their father and said, look, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your, your son's robe. Now, I love the way that they say your son. They don't refer to our brother. They say your son. Obviously, Jacob, who gave this to Joseph, recognizes it and says, it is my son's robe. Some animal has devoured him and he has surely been torn to pieces. Jacob tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth, and mourned for his sons for many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. Now, this shows, first of all, that Reuben has failed. The firstborn son, who has the responsibility to take care of his siblings, failed to do so. Judah, one of the other brothers, betrays Joseph and sells him into slavery. But now, something that Jacob did has actually come back upon him. You may not remember this story, but Jacob one time was trying to steal Esau's blessing. He was trying to take his older brother's blessing from his father. His father Isaac had poor eyesight. And so what he did was he sacrificed an animal. He took the skin and fur of that animal and placed it on his body because Esau was notoriously a hairy man. And so he deceives his father by putting on these animal skins as clothes in order to trick his dad and make him, his dad think, oh, this is Esau. I will bless him. But now what Jacob did to his father is coming back upon him. His sons take clothing and trick him just like he used clothing to trick his father. Now, the son's plan was to, to get rid of the favorite, right? They want to get rid of the favorite son, and so the attention can be on the other sons. But guess what? Their plan, again, totally fails. All Jacob can think about is his favorite son. I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. As we'll see for chapters and chapters, for years after Joseph's death, Jacob is still obsessed with, still focused on his son's death. He can't think about anything else. Now, this is just the first chapter in Joseph's life. Joseph starts at the top of the household of Jacob. He is the favored one. He is the one who uh, oversees his brothers and, and takes a report about them to his father. His father trusts him to be honest about that. He's obedient to his father. He is special in the, in the sense that God gives him these dreams that reveal things about the future. But the problem is that Joseph is foolish. He tells his brothers exactly what's going to happen. He tells his dreams to them, and he tells his, his own dreams to his father. He is naive. And so while he rises to the top of his father's house, inevitably there comes a fall. This is the first rise and fall of Joseph, because over and over in Joseph's life, we will see this cycle. We will see this pattern over and over again. 
Joseph rises to power, and then he falls. He rises to power, and then he falls. Now, one way of thinking about Joseph's life is that he is transferred from house to house to house. So first, he is in the house of his father, Jacob. Then he is in the house of his master, Potiphar. Then he is in the house of a warden when he ends up in the dungeons or prisons of Pharaoh. And then he uh, uh, is transferred to the house of Pharaoh in the court. So in his life, he experiences what we would call a roller coaster. He succeeds and prospers and then he suffers. He succeeds and then he prospers and then he suffers. But his story is not merely cyclical. Other stories in the ancient Near East would often uh, share stories that just kept uh, going back to the same, uh, uh, wh where the character started. It always seemed like there is a never way to, never a way to break out of the cycle. But Joseph's story is different. It isn't just cyclical. It ends in a new and exciting and incredibly providential ending. Joseph didn't know what his station in life would be at the end. He went through so many times of prosperity and then poverty that he didn't know where he would end up. But his story is not merely cyclical. God has a plan the entire time and God puts him exactly where he needs to be to fulfill God's purposes. His story doesn't just end up back in the house of his father, Jacob, exactly where he started. He ends up in the house of Pharaoh, and he is placed there at the perfect time to do what God wants. His station in life is not set in stone. It is guided by God. Now, I've already mentioned this, but I think this is so important as a motif and theme throughout Joseph's story. What's so interesting about him is that his falls, his, uh, uh, his departures from prosperity and success are not due to any egregious sin or distrust in God. Joseph is actually really dissimilar to other characters in Scripture like Saul or David or Moses who uh, inevitably commit some huge error and then are punished by God. So Saul loses the kingship. It's taken away from him. David loses his child with Bathsheba. Moses loses the ability to go to the promised land. They all have these kind of catastrophic errors where they trip and stumble and screw up and don't do the right thing and God punishes them and they kind of have a fall from grace. But, but Joseph's falls aren't exactly due to that. His falls are due to foolishness. And the first example of this foolishness is what he says to his brothers. I mean, anybody with half a brain would know that there might be consequences if I tell my older brothers they're going to bow down before me. If he could have thought in advance, if he could have considered the fact that maybe they might not be pleased with this information, he would have uh, been saved a lot of difficulty in his life. I mean, why in the world would you tell your own parents that they are going to bow down to you? He never had to do that. He could have kept that information to himself. But he's naive. He's oblivious. And he thinks maybe everything is going to be just fine. 
So Joseph's character arc is not from bad to good. It's not from sinner to saint or vice to virtue. Joseph's character arc, if we pay attention throughout the whole story, is from fool to sage, from short-sighted to far-sighted, from naive to strategic, from optimistic to realistic. His story is about growing in wisdom. Finally, Joseph's story is not, not the prosperity gospel. Some of us can read Joseph's story and think that in the end, God will make all of our life's trajectories the same as Joseph's. Inevitably, it will be up and to the right. It will be positive. It will end up really, really well. But that's actually not true. We don't all end up as rulers in a nation with great power and authority like Joseph. We don't all end up wealthy and prestigious in this life. The prosperity gospel tells us that if you have faith, if you trust in God, God will be with you and God will make you healthy and wealthy. But this is a lie. And Joseph's story actually shows us that at his most faithful is when he is suffering the most. He suffers dearly, and precisely at those moments, the Lord is with him. We hear this same refrain over and over, and you should listen for it as we read through the story. The Lord was with Joseph. And we're told that right when he is at his deepest fall from grace, right when he is suffering the most. It's not at his most prosperous or most successful, it is when he suffers dearly, when he is in slavery, when he is falsely accused of crimes he never uh, committed, and when he's forgotten in a dungeon. God does not promise to elevate us in this life. If anything, as Christians, we should know that the one thing we can be assured of is that we will suffer will go through times of incredible trial and temptation and difficulty. There will be huge obstacles to our life, to our flourishing. The only question is if we'll be like Joseph, if we will be a suffering servant of God. Jesus calls us to pick up our cross daily and follow him. If anything, that is a guarantee that we will suffer for Jesus and we will suffer like Jesus. And Joseph is like a a version of that story way before Jesus ever shows up. Joseph is a sufferer. He goes through so much pain and difficulty. His life story is not about the prosperity gospel. It's about God's providence about God guiding every single detail of his life to put him exactly where he needs to be to fulfill God's purposes for him. We won't all end up in positions of power and authority like Joseph. We, if anything, will end up with incredible difficulties, incredible challenges that we could never face on our own. But it's right then, at those times, that the Lord will be with us And the Lord promises to be with us, just like Joseph. 
That's what we're seeing already in the first chapter of his story. He's a 17-year-old boy betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, stripped of his ornate robe, and sent off to live in the house of Potiphar. That's not the prosperity gospel. That is not a story about our life always going well. The story is about growing in wisdom, growing as we suffer for the Lord and trusting him to be with us at all times. And next week, we'll talk about what happens in the house of Potiphar.